Hello, this is Experience.Computer, an interview show about creativity, perception, and expression. I'm Jay Springer, and for most of my life, I believed that picture this was just a metaphor. That was until 2022 when I discovered something about myself. I have aphantasia, the inability to voluntarily create mental images in one's mind. In this episode, I lead social thinker and writer Dougal Pine through a series of imaginative exercises, and then we discuss how the internet came in like a tide, managing the space and energy of group conversation, the significance of writing by hand and its impact on self-expression and communication, and more. Let's begin. Dougald, hello. Welcome to Experience.Computer. Hello. For the benefits of the people listening, could you please explain who you are? Uh, yeah, so I'm a writer and social thinker, and I ended up kickstarting a few organizations, including the Dark Mountain Project, and most recently, a school called Home. And what would you say that you do on the day-to-day when you're working on those projects? Well, trying to use words to create a space that we can meet in and look at things together and try looking at things differently um, from different angles, I guess. Could you please describe the room that you're sitting in right now? I'm sitting in our kitchen uh, which is upstairs because I live in Sweden and we have kitchens upstairs. And there is a kitchen table in front of me covered in chaos of pens and pencils and plants and herbs that are drying from the garden and stuff that hasn't been put away from breakfast. Um, and there's a work surface that I reinstalled the other night, having lived with it for about three weeks without it being installed. So we almost started taking its absence for granted. Um, and there's a Swedish kitchen sofa on the other side of me. And there's a, a light that's plugged on just behind me because whenever I plug in my charger in that socket, it switches on the light switch next to it, which is a bit inconvenient. Thank you. So we're going to start with our traditional first question. Dougald, I'd like you to close your eyes and I'd like you to picture a ball on a table. Roll the ball off the table onto the floor. Okay, open your eyes. What colour was the ball? I don't know. Um... I I was kind of imagining uh, a dirty table tennis ball that our cat plays with. Um, so then it's like a dirty white color, but was I seeing it? I, it's, it's kind of borderline. Did the table have any sort of material? No, it was just like a, a, a flat surface. A flat surface? Hmm. Like a plane rather yeah. than a... Yeah, more, yeah, more a plane than a, like a specific table. And when the ball rolled, did you see that? 
Um, it kind of um, kind of had a sense of ping pong ball bouncing as it like came off the table. So the, the sort of movement, the sensation. Yeah. Hmm. And you couldn't tell me what the floor that it bounced on <laughs> looked like no. or anything like that. No, I couldn't. Right. So you had some sort of sensation or sense of spheres, planes, and some kind of movement. And the experience of it dropping was more significant than it rolling. Yeah, that was what made me have to know what kind of ball it was, was how it fell. Oh, I see. Because that's the point at which its behavior comes. Does that make sense? When I asked you to roll the ball, did you retroactively apply details to the the initial concept of the ball on the table? Yeah, I guess so. Like, I don't, I, I didn't have a picture with detail in it when you asked me to picture a ball on a table. I just had a spear and a plane. I mean, I don't see anything at all mm. when I'm asked those questions. So that's really fascinating. Did the did it move in a direction? Yeah, it moved to the right. To the right. Let's move on to the next question and we'll we'll see if we can flesh out some puzzle out some more details of, of what you can and can't see and experience. So I'd like you to picture an apple. What color is it? It's red along one side and then green as it goes around to the other side okay so you can see the apple yeah but you know why it looks like that i'm spending a lot of time with apples at the moment in the garden and noticing the way in which the side that gets more sunlight turns red before the other side does i see so i cannot promise you that i am seeing it the way that somebody else might see it or that my concept of an apple right now is colored by that experience. You've got apples on the brain at the moment. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Can you imagine holding the apple in your hand? Yeah. What does the texture feel like? Mm. Um, it's quite smooth. I can sort of feel the weight of it more than the texture. The weight. Yeah, I can imagine the weight of it in my hand. And can you throw it up in the air and catch it? Uh, if it was an actual apple in my hand, that would be touch and go. Um, but yeah, not really. Not really. So you couldn't pass the apple from one hand to the other. That's easier. That's definitely easier than throwing it and catching it. Are you a juggler? Not really, no. Can you throw the apple back the other way? Yeah. Yes. And the time that it takes from leaving one hand and arriving in the other or throwing mm. it up and down, would you say that that's accurate to your understanding or memory <laughs> of gravity yeah i can tune into that like i could if 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 i put my attention onto that then i can definitely have a feel for like how high i'm throwing it and how like yeah how it moves 
in terms of the time. What about if you hold the apple to your mouth and you bite into it? What's your experience? I get a kind of collage of vague impressions of different apples. Like I can't hold on to, um, I, I, I can't picture or can't like imagine and hold on to a clear impression of a particular apple. What I can get is this kind of shifting. A collage of, of memories of eating apples. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask. And does it have a sound when you bite into it? Uh, yeah, I can bring a, like I can bring it, I can bring to mind the sound of biting into an apple. Hmm. Is your mouth watering? Can you taste it? No, no, not really. No. Let's try. What about an orange? Can you imagine the taste of orange juice? Yes. Mm, astringent, sweet. Mm, yeah. Is there anything else that you can immediately bring to mind the taste of? Mm. What about coffee? <laughs> yeah, well, I can bring to mind the taste of coffee because I've just been drinking it. I can bring to mind the taste of licorice ice cream. Licorice ice cream. Yeah. Comes to mind. Right. Okay. What about the smell of freshly ground coffee? Yeah. You can smell that too. Hmm. Mm. I'd like you to recall an object that you had in your childhood. Mm. What's the first thing that comes to mind? The feel of it in my, like, being small and holding it and like touching running my hands over it what is the object if you don't mind me asking it's a it's a little sort of plastic bird where you pull a string at the bottom and it plays a tune that i had from when i was very little and we still have it around my son had it when he was little as well so the first thing that comes to mind is that the feel and the touch of it that's very interesting mm -hmm. can you picture it yeah Obviously, you still have it in your in your in your life. So yeah, no, I I, I can see the color of it. I can see its eyes and like the little wings. So I find like picturing actual things that I know. I can do in a totally different way to like when you ask me to imagine the ball on the table, and trying to like. Like my imagination doesn't fill that in, but I can bring sort of, you know, not really like strong, powerful um, visual memories, but enough visual memory to like feel the presence of, of things that I actually know and have spent time with. So if I was to ask you imag to imagine a penguin on a pogo stick, <laughs> Can you do that? Uh, yeah, yeah, just about in a kind of cartoonish way, yes. And by cartoon, mm -hmm. 
let's talk about that for a minute. Do you mean like Hanna-Barbera or a, or a television cartoon or in the sense that a cartoon is the sketch that people do before they begin to work on the portrait? That sense of like second order uh, work before you get to the actual yeah no more more the former so like really simplified uh like um is it yeah um kind of drawn and colored if i was to say the penguin is on the pogo stick in a jungle do you then fill in the information around the penguin or is it just black yeah, there's there's like a, a sort of you know child's theatre set bit of jungle coming around it. Then, wow, that's so cool. Let me just think about another question that's sort of related to this. When you hear the joke, a man goes into a bar. Are you picturing a bar? Yeah, it hasn't got a lot of detail. Is it based on somewhere that you've been before or is it? I don't know. Um, the, the, what I find is like, if I, if I try to direct my attention towards what I'm picturing, it evaporates. Right. So you, do you like scare it away? What's the, what's the best <laughs> adjective? Um, it's more just like it just blows away on the breeze kind of thing. It's like, it's like, it's very evanescent. It's very, um, yeah. Let's try and picture a vase on a table. And what I'd like you to do is be mindful of what's happening as you turn your attention towards the vase. I'm struggling. I'm getting the same, the same thing I said to you when you asked me about biting into the apple and I said it was like a collage. I'm getting this kind of collage of all of the vases I know or can like vaguely think of and it's not stable. It's like if I open my eyes, I can look at an actual vase that is on the table, but that wasn't what I was seeing and I hadn't really noticed that it was on the table until I opened my eyes. Right. That instability is really interesting. Can you maybe describe that a little bit more? Is it a flickering? It's not quite like flickering sense. Flickering makes it sound like sharper and more kind of um, blocky. Um, so it, it's, yeah, it's just a kind of, yeah, a kind of vagueness. A vagueness. So here's another question. I know you've been doing a lot of DIY. I mean, we've been speaking for a couple mm. of years. We've been working on the buildings for a school called Home. Can you imagine yeah. holding a hammer in your hand? Yeah. And the weight of the head versus the... Yeah. What's the texture of the handle? Uh, it's kind of um, like rubbery grip. So it's got some texture to it to help it help hold on to it and are you imagining your hammer or is it a collage of all hammers 
No, I'm I'm imagining the most recent hammer that I was using. Mm-hmm. And if you tip it backwards and forwards in your hand, mm-hmm. so the head as if you were about to strike a nail, can you yeah. feel the weight of that? Yeah. Accurately. Yeah. So we've done um, picturing a thing. What about, let's just think about apples for a moment before we move mm. on. And if I was to say the symbolism of an apple, does anything happen? Yeah, there's a bite out of it. Oh, okay. So there's a bite out of the apple. So when you are given the prompt of symbolism, then the bite then of, I'm assuming that you're feeling the Genesis story or something like that. Yeah. um, In order to get to the, the bite out of the apple. Does it then make, did it add an extra layer of meanings, the wrong word? So when you said apples, I was seeing this little orange um, foldable baby bath that's full of um, apples, some of which are like a bit past it, that's sitting on the porch out there right now, waiting for me to do something with them. And then you said symbolism, and suddenly my attention was completely pivoted away from that towards something more abstract, more like the um, the very first exercise with the ball on the table, um, but with this like uh, with yeah, it's almost like the Apple logo. Um, but you know, yeah, or something vaguely like it, something like much more kind of abstract than the kind of um the memory of the um the tub full of apples that's sitting on the porch so you didn't necessarily get all of the kind of symbolism within culture arriving it was more of a lo- the the apple logo oh no no i mean it was all like it it was definitely the the symbolism within culture that was going on it's just that then what i'm seeing becomes more abstract like closer to the level, I guess, at which I'm thinking about symbols and uh, meaning and connections, which I don't think I do in a very visual way. Can you kind of describe, is it possible? Maybe we need to do some exercises. Is it possible to, <laughs> des- is it possible to describe that plane or that type of thinking? Here's a, here's a concrete question. When you're thinking about things in that way, is it happening in your brain is it happening in your chest or is it happening out there somewhere in the the ether it's happening out there and the reason i know that is because when i'm talking from stuff that like where i'm really in that zone i have an experience that is I, equivalent to if I was physically reaching around me and pulling in, weaving together different things. Like, uh, and I have an experience of the, the material that I draw on when I'm thinking or writing or speaking being you know, a, the fruit of um, having having the stuff that I've brought within reach of me 
for that kind of work that I reading and conversations and thinking like ends up creating this kind of constellation of stuff that is within reach for the work that I do when I'm then um, like pulling it together, arranging it in different ways, making different connections, telling a story or a, just pouring stuff out of my mouth or my pen or whatever. So thinking for you is spatialized. Is that, would you use that word in that there's, it's meta and beyond yourself and ideas are swirling around and you're weaving and, you know, as you said. Yeah, there's a, there's a kind of dance of it. And I, I, I sort of, I, I pull back from spatialized because that makes me think of like Cartesian uh, kind of abstract space and coordinates and so on. And I feel like without needing to, like, without having any kind of rational description of it, um, I'm probably experiencing something that is a like a different kind of um, placement in relation to like all of the stuff that I'm working with when I'm thinking or writing or speaking. So when you're in a conversation, not necessarily this one, but when you're in conversation with people or perhaps in a group of people discussing a particular subject, what's going on? I don't know. I, I, when I think about what's going on, I, I'm very, I'm very aware of the way in which like things happen in conversation that haven't been brought there by any of us who've come there. Like they've happened because of the the constellation that's there. Um, and I'm aware of the times when I have a, like feel a real surge of something coming through me in conversation. And I feel like it took me a long way into my life to learn how to negotiate um, the kind of balance between like those really forceful experiences of something coming through me and wanting to be said and like listening to and making room for and making invitations for what other people are saying so that the conversation hits that kind of generative space. So maybe there's something like, so there's a depth, there's a, there's a depth axis that's there in the way I experience. Yeah, you know, I've spent a lot of time I, thinking about um, working with and exploring like, what's the difference between a talking shop and a space of depth, a, a deep conversational space in which people come alive and in which there is some kind of uh, sense of making something together through which new ideas come, new ways of seeing come, new experiences come, and we go away feeling more alive as a result of having spent time in that space. And depth is definitely one of the, the languages for, the, uh, for talking about that that seems to make sense to people. You use the word space. Do you feel mm. like the conversation fills up the room? I feel like 
the conversation creates something which is kind of utterly unrelated to the space of the room. Like an opening, sometimes an opening to something much faster. And sometimes, you know, like a lot of us over the last two and a half years, for some reason, I have spent a lot of time in conversations on Zoom mm -hmm. um, and actually like creating conversational spaces on Zoom where many of the people involved have never met uh, IRL. And I like, and, and learning to trust that sometimes it's possible to trick these technologies into making possible um, the thing we would you know, be longing for if we were actually meeting around the kitchen table rather than through screens and cameras. Um, and part of that like, time seems to be really important to that. And in particular, repetition and rhythm. And um, there's, there's an artist we work with, Kelly Lee Hickey, who um, said, uh, when we meet in this way, repeatedly over distance through these technologies, if we're re meeting regularly, then time becomes the space in which we meet. And my, like the image that came to me of that was, do you know I, how a hair, the animal, um, doesn't make a burrow under the ground, but it will have a lay which is a patch in the grass that is kind of formed by the shape of its body because of it repeatedly lying down there. Mm -hmm. And I feel like my experience of gathering people over you know, technologies like Zoom, where we gather repeatedly and enough people are showing up most times we gather, is that it begins to form like a, a kind of little hollow in time which is waiting for us when we come back. And so through the repetition, it becomes easier to get this kind of, this depth experience that I'm talking about. So the regular coming together of individuals, whether it's in person or on Zoom at a place, and obviously at, is at their desk or on Zoom, but more specifically, as you were saying, it's the time it creates mm. a kind of psychic pocket or a psychic. I'm imagining the image of um, where you see space time warped by, by gravity on a plane. Um, I'm not yeah. seeing it <laughs> at all, but yeah, I'm yeah. just, that, that image <laughs> comes to mind. Is that, is, so that's what's going on with, with this. It, it can do. Like it doesn't like, just because you have a team meeting at nine o'clock every Monday morning doesn't mean that's going to happen. It's like there are, there are other conditions of possibility and trying to like not figure it out in the sense of having a reliable formula for it, but trying to pay attention to what are the conditions of possibility of that feels like something that I'm really alive to. You were saying earlier about how conversations have a kind of depth and in those spaces when they're going well, let's say, mm. things arise and arise from you and, and come out your mouth <laughs> and that's what you're i guess optimizing is too is too uh cruel a word um but that's what you're seeking to find is to create a condition for those things to arise yeah i'm like i'm interested in 
the moments where everyone notices the thing that was just said. Yes. And again, like ha having this practice of having groups that come together regularly, uh, you begin to see that you know, it's not predictable who is going to be the person who says something on a particular occasion that has that weight. But you can kind of learn, you learn to trust and you learn to pay attention to like when that happens and then to lean into that. It's as if often that thing is a, a doorway. <sighs> who was I? I was listening to somebody who was talking about the sort of image of Bugs Bunny, like drawing the door uh, in thin air and being able to open it and move it through. It was uh, Federico Campagna. And Connor Habib. And Connor Habib, you've listened to it too. Yes. Right. So that happens. That's, that's what I mean when I say like the actual physical first three dimension space that you're sitting in becomes kind of both irrelevant and smaller than what can be going on in conversations that have this quality, because what, what can be going on is that you can be going through a whole sequence of doors and like whoever happens to find themselves with the chalk at that moment draws the next door in the air. And after an hour or two hours in that kind of space, you know, you can, you come back with all sorts of things that nobody brought to the beginning of that gathering. You've been through many twisty passages, as it were. Yeah, yeah. Would you say that you're like a, a an old school FM, AM radio dial and that you're constantly tuning yourself both to detect those moments in other people where someone's picked up the chalk and, and drawn a door or tuning in a way that allows you to bring forth those ideas like you're an antenna and that they've just been they've just arrived you know because you got the tuning just right i definitely i mean now when you say that i'm thinking about jeffrey kripal's book the flip and um i i i'm definitely if i have to choose the kind of the antenna or receiver model of what's going on beats the uh the sort of standard um model of what's going on with consciousness for me um i'm not particularly i i don't feel any great need to have an answer or a description of this and i having having chosen you know that path rather than the other one of that binary fork i then immediately feel myself wanting to say but there's something stranger and more fluid going on that the that the radio receiver metaphor doesn't help that much with so the most important thing is actually just being alive and, and what i mean like that is is is, <laughs> is paying attention to others and being alive to the things that you are experiencing being in the situation with both the meaning that's being communicated by the vibrating columns of air that are coming out of people's mouths and also being alive to how those, how you receive those ideas, both, I want to say physically in your body, 
and also mentally or spiritually is the, the other word that I'm I'm looking for. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, we talk about the school here as a gathering place and a learning community for those who are drawn to the work of regrowing a living culture. And there's, you know, there's an implicit um, statement within that about the condition of the culture that most of us were born into. And that uh, I, I get drawn back to um, coming alive and bringing life as as a kind of um, a way of talking. And one of the things that brings me back to it is Suli Rolnik, the Brazilian psychoanalyst, has this um, concept of the vital compass that we have, you know, given that we have far more senses than these Aristotelian five that we've been using in these exercises or trying to use the imaginative counterparts to, that uh, one of the other senses is like a compass that tells us when we are moving towards or moving away from things that will bring us alive and will bring life. Um, so I feel like yeah, navigating by like, listening for what, what brings life, what makes me come alive and what seems to make others come alive is definitely, definitely a big part of it for me. There's a quote, and I don't remember which saint it is in the Philo Kalia, the Greek Orthodox book for ascetics, essentially. It's their guide to, to prayer. It's just move towards the good. Yeah. Through a different lens, of course. But would you say that that's, that encapsulates that same sort of feeling? Yes. Yeah, I think so. I, you know, I, I think it's it's not hard to bridge between that language and the language of life in the way that I'm using it, and you know it's not hard to find the biblical and theological um, you know, links in that. I want to move on slightly to a more abstract subject, and I'd like to move on from the idea of ideas. And I'd like to connect it as we were talking about with feelings and what's the difference between an idea and a feeling or do feelings give rise to ideas? And the other way around, of course, is that ideas give you feelings. Mm. I think um, my personal experience is that I've never been very good at keeping ideas and feelings separate from each other. And when I was young, that made life harder, um, especially because of kind of ways that things are set up, expectations that we have from modernity about, well, I mean, I, I still, I, I think T.S. Eliot's dissociation of sensibility idea that uh or thesis that that there was some kind of split between heart and head in the 17th century like whatever its merits as a piece of literary criticism as a kind of back of an envelope story of 
modernity, I find it very compelling and I find it resonating with lots of things being said by people who are coming from quite elsewhere from where he was coming from. And I feel like finding, finding writers and thinkers who also just like couldn't even see how or why you would treat it as um you know normal or necessary or possible to have this hard separation between thinking and feeling was very important to the journey from like finding it quite difficult to be a young person towards being like pretty grateful for the stuff that I get to do and the way that I get to connect with people around it now as a middle-aged person. So it, that's that's how you feel. Um, I, I mean, I totally agree. And I'm just <laughs> wondering about when you're in a group situation with individuals about how their feeling affects the this web or threads of ideas like you were like you were talking about and you know because you can feel someone's excitement when you're in a conversation with them or or negativity from someone else someone's excited someone's someone's being negative someone else has got a lot going on at home that they haven't mentioned or but they've brought it to the conversation and i'm wondering do these things do you feel them deform or shape reshape the the shape of the conversation that's happening yeah i mean yeah the state that people are in um it's part of the conditions of possibility for what can happen like you can sometimes you have one person or two people who turn up and something that is going on in them and between them and never mentioned is nonetheless I, a block to what otherwise might have happened in a conversation. That seems pretty clear. And the other, like, this is also somewhere where this question of, like, what happens? What are the conditions of possibility for things happening? What are the differences when we're doing it over Zoom rather than around the kitchen table? Like, one thing I'm very aware of is that there is a certain brittleness, even when we like, even when we really succeed at creating spaces of depth through these technologies, there is a brittleness to it because there is a kind of, I think there's an effort of imagination that is like over and above what would be required if we had the assistance of being bodily present breathing the same air and if something happens that ruptures it it can feel like you've been being silly it get like when something goes wrong it's a lot harder to mend than it would be if we were actually sat around the table or actually lived close enough to each other to get together around the table regularly and i really noticed that and it's one of the kind of the shadows that falls over the the digital side of the work um, and I mean, the other experience I had recently that really brought this into focus was, you know, I do a podcast with Ed Gillespie called The Great Humbling. Yes. And we did 29 episodes without ever having met in person, just recording it like this. And then the 30th episode, I happened to be 
staying quite near where he lives in England. And so we went and stayed with his family. And after a couple of days of hanging out together, we sat down and recorded a conversation in person. And it was it was such a sort of perfect experiment in a, a format that we'd worked out so well. So we knew what we were doing. We knew how to do it. The only thing that had changed was that we weren't in different time zones through a screen and really getting to feel like, the ease of doing it in person and the amount of energy that it takes to create and sustain an experience of presence that is more dependent on the imagination when we're doing it through tools like these. You're listening to Experience Your Computer with my guest, Dougal Hine. If you're enjoying this episode, please rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps out with the algorithm. Thanks. Now back to the show. Let's talk about Zoom as a piece of software. When you're using Zoom, do you, what sort of, what window do you have selected? Are we on your screen right now? Are we equal sizes or I, or am I big because I'm speaking and you're small or what setting do you have it on? Right now you're big and I'm small, but I do have self view on. And if I'm, if I'm doing a session with a, a dozen people or um or a hundred people that I, I always have it in the sort of mosaic so that even if even if there's a kind of dialogue between me and one other person going on i want to be able to have some sense of the looks on people's faces the ways that people are responding you know some kind of substitute for that thing that you would have if we were sat around in the same room so do you feel that when you are in mosaic view, would you say it's widened in scope or is it, or do you feel it, you can get more of a sense of the outside of, or the size of the container? Uh, I don't know. I feel like it's something that's very artificial that I've got used to. Um, also, I accept with a group that's really formed and got to know each other well, I pretty much insist on having the chat switched off because it's like, I, I cannot do this thing where you're asked to give a talk and there is a chat channel that you can see at the same time. And I actually kind of want to ask people to give their attention to um, what I'm saying or what anybody else is saying rather than have their attention split between the two when we're on a call together. That changes once there's a group that's formed and is meeting regularly and has got to know each other because then you actually manage this kind of syncopation and playfulness between um, the spoken and the chat going together but that to me is utterly impossible with a group of strangers who have come together because there's an invitation to a session about a particular subject or whatever it is so would you say that the the video part of zoom is one section i'm going to use the word world just for my ease of of use 
would you say that the video section is one world and the chat is its own world separate from the conversation that is happening with or is there some sort of membrane that is connecting the two well there is a membrane that's connecting the two because there are responses between the two um and like yeah if they were really separate worlds it would be easier to tune out i mean it's uh, uh or it would be easier to just go okay well you guys all have that other world and i won't be aware of it i mean i remember like i remember when twitter arrived through 2006 7 8 9 and i was at conferences where the whole power dynamic was changed by the being the back channel of there being a hashtag um and the person on the stage like didn't know what was going on but the people in the audience rather than sitting on your hands wondering if everyone else was as bored as you were by this you could find out um and like that was quite exciting and kind of oh that sort of felt like it brought some life to things for a little while as a disruptive force um and yeah i remember writing in 2011 when i when it was kicking off everywhere um about the like what twitter had been doing three years earlier to conferences being what it was now doing at that sort of nation state level and that was probably my peak moment of optimism about social media um whereas it just seems much clearer the way that things have evolved that it settles into just constantly fragmented attention in a way that doesn't really benefit us. And it feels really obvious that people right now get a lot out of spaces that deliberately ask for more attention mm -hmm. and focus. So let's, let's set aside the term social media just for a second and talk about the internet in general. Cade Deem from the New Design Congress uses the term para-real to describe what's happening on the internet. Would you say that's a good term for that kind of back-channel conference, um, the ongoings that were happening in the, in the back-channel of the conference, but also <laughs> the way that the internet has affected material reality? I can see how I can see how some people might find it helpful. It doesn't sound like the kind of word that I would use, but um, but we do need you know, we need ways of talking about the strangeness of this and also relating it to other strange things that have been around before. So. I, in the early days of doing the online side of things with the school, when we were running the first Homeward Bound series, I found myself saying, you know, until quite recently, a group of people could be gathered or they could be scattered, but it would have made literally no sense to be, to imagine being gathered and scattered at the same time. Um, and I said it often enough that, um, Billy Bottle, who's our producer, wrote a song called Gathered and Scattered. But a year or so down the line, I found myself saying that with another group 
And somebody pushed back and said, well, no, actually, like there have always been, you know, tools, let's say tools of unusual consciousness through which people were gathered and scattered at the same time. And we're just a bit prejudiced to this rather parochial assumption that it was only when we created these technologies that that became possible. And when I heard that, it reminded me of Alistair McIntosh saying that, you know, for the generation, a generation or two older than him in the Outer Hebrides where he grew up, when it was normal for family members to be away over the sea in Glasgow or you know, further away, and before there were telephones, it was just a taken for granted part of life that sometimes you know, news of a death arrived by um, means that we don't have a way of explaining before it arrived by mundane means. And there is a sense that as these technologies have spread further into our lives, that stuff gets pushed out to the edges and becomes like it vanishes from the kind of the vernacular everyday experience and becomes something woo or something that's just not real. Mm -hmm. And the other side of that is I found myself thinking about how we, whether this experience of, I've got a cat that needs evicting from the kitchen table, um, whether this experience of sometimes managing to trick these technologies into creating powerful experiences, presence, whether that might be aided by things that belong to this kind of anachronistic um, or kind of beyond the pale suite of technologies we don't even recognize as technologies. So I'll give you two examples that brought that into focus for me. The first one was, I was part of a group brought together by Vanessa Machado de Oliveira and the Decolonial Futures, gesturing towards Decolonial Futures Collective, where we were gathering every week for, must've been the autumn of 2000, around the question of living at the end of the world. And there were two indigenous groups connected to the collective who were holding ceremony in parallel with our Zoom sessions. And, you know, that, Whatever else, it puts a certain quietness on you, a certain sense of um, taking seriously what you've come together to do. If you know that you know, in two different continents, there are groups of people who are holding ritual fires to pray for the work that you're doing in the conversation you're having on Zoom. But on the first of those sessions, like halfway through the two hours, we took a five minute break and when we came back, I just happened to, we'd all switched our cameras off and I just happened to have a photograph that shows up when my camera is off that was taken at this exhibition of John Burge's archive in London 10 years ago. And someone got this photo where I'm sort of standing and behind me, sort of over my shoulder is this photo of Berger 
like he's kind of looking over my shoulder. And you know, Berger is somebody who feels like an elder to the work that I've been doing over the years. One of the people whose work helped me find my bearings. And I saw this on the screen and I suddenly had the sense of, right, like everyone on this call, like all 30 of us have elders peering in over our shoulders. And that's part of the, like the experience of depth that we're having might have to do with that. So then the other piece that I found my way to thinking about with this is something in one of Martin Shaw's books. You know, Martin's a storyteller and mythographer, but also spent many years leading wilderness rites of passage and of initiation work where he's taking groups out and preparing people. And then the members of the group are going and doing a sort of four days and nights of solo fasting on the side of a hill. And there's a bit in one of his books, I think it's in Snowy Tower, where he describes how he and his teacher, who he started out helping in that work, would ask each of the participants to take a stone from the site where they were going to be sitting and bring it to the, the campfire at base camp. And Martin's teacher said to him, look, you have to learn to get inside those stones because that's how you're going to know what's going on for the people out on the hillside. And he said it took him years before he had a kind of breakthrough. And when he did, he could literally first like feel what was happening for these people out in the different places around the hillside by holding the stones and then get like visual snapshots of what was going on for them. Uh, and so I thought I, you know, firstly, our computers are made out of minerals that are mined out of the earth. They're also made out of the labor of lots of people involved in that process. And you might want to think twice about trying to get inside everything that that implies. But in some sense, these old techniques that we have no explanation for might run in parallel to gathering through the screens and then cameras and keyboards and so on. So that's, yeah, that's kind of where all of this has been taking me. Mm. Do you think that the main thing that people should perhaps not cultivate is that's the wrong word because it's like I'm suggesting that someone does something, but paying attention, being present, and also being aware of this depth that, I mean, you've mentioned that word several times in, in different contexts, and I'm assuming that you actually mean the same, it's almost the same root, you know, the, 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 thing, the thing that depth is meaning for you means the same thing in, in these different scenarios. Do you think that it's actually those things that are important, not necessarily the technology or the circumstances in which people are interacting? Yeah. Um, I think the technology has consequences. Um, so it's not like it, there's no significance to it. A lot of what I'm talking about, I think, is really working against the grain of technologies um, by finding convivial uses for non-convivial tools without pretending to ourselves that these uses are ever going to be the dominant ways in which these tools are used. 
and that means that there is a kind of i for me anyway there is a tension between um the the implications of the tools and technologies and systems and the things that i feel matter and the things that i'm working for but there is this kind of trickster thinking which says you know under certain conditions we can work against the grain of the technology rather than uh or, or we can use it as scaffolding that was an image that came talking to william wardlaw rogers out of this conversation we found ourselves saying you know what if we think about these technologies as scaffolding for things we're trying to build and when when the house is finished you take down the scaffolding i seeing them as a kind of tr transitional phase that might be if we're using them against themselves might be helpful right now and to me that becomes more fruitful than getting into some kind of more straightforward um kind of anti civ anarchist john zerzan or uh like luddite in the kind of sense that luddite gets thrown around attitude to technologies this kind of this kind of tricks to thinking let's talk about the internet in general do you remember the first time that you went on the internet yeah i was in sixth form um so i would have been like 17 what year was that uh 1994 or 95 mm. what do you remember about that experience uh not well like most of what i remember of the first few years of being on the internet was not really knowing how to find anything um like mm, yeah um yeah, it was definitely a few years before I saw I, what it was good or useful for. What do you remember about the, the dial-up tones? Oh, oh well, I mean, I, yeah, I can remember the sound of um, modems uh, in the 90s, definitely. Did you ever have any thoughts at the time about what was happening? when those noises were were going on? <laughs> well, I mean, they reminded me of the sound of loading up a game on my ZX Spectrum a few years earlier. Right. Uh, so when you're going on the internet or hearing like the machine noise of the technology, did you feel like you were entering a world the same way as you were booting a game on your Spectrum? Did it have a threshold like quality? Hmm. I think it wasn't a like it wasn't a consistent and dominant enough feature of my early experience of going on the internet because very soon I was traveling around Europe and using computers in internet cafes. And then at university using computers that were on a network. So I, I just didn't have long enough mm. of that experience of the dial up being the threshold to the internet for it to take on that significance for me. This comes back to the question about where the internet is, but this time we'll 
we'll say where the internet was. So for you, originally the internet was in the very early days, it was the crossing that it was through the machine noise. And then the internet was in cafes. So it was in a building (laughs) on the street. And then the internet was assume, I assume connected to your computer in halls. Or in a, in a computer lab. A lab. Uh, Yeah. Or a computer room um in college so the internet was a place that you had to go yeah like a library yeah and you know i had friends who did have computers that were connected up in their college rooms but i didn't and slowly but surely the internet has (laughs) come closer to you first in your house and then with wi-fi it's now everywhere if the electricity is turned on I mean, that is essentially we're we're recounting maybe a 20 year history of where the Internet was. Do you think that's been like a slow tide that is something that's happened to society that it hasn't been aware of? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it feels like. You know, in historical terms, a very fast tide, but, um, in experiential terms, yeah, a slow tied and it i mean i I immediately think of the extension of the state into people's lives over the history of modernity and that it's the same kind of it it has the same dynamic to it so every year the tide comes in and goes out less far season upon season yeah i was speaking with someone recently and we were talking about gen x what used to be known as Gen Y and then the millennials and then Zoomers as placeholder demographics and how Gen X really have that um, because they were that little bit older when the internet arrived. They definitely remember times before the internet going to the library to look something up or whatever experience of the world pre-internet. Gen Y, to be honest, Gen Y is a better term than geriatric millennials that the media seems to use. Which <laughs> are you? Are you a gen, are you a geriatric millennial, Jay? I'm Gen Y. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm tail end Gen X. So I remember, I remember before the internet, but I was also quite young the first time I went on the internet. I think it was probably around 90, 94 or ninety five. Would have been nine or ten. Um, <laughs> and the first thing I asked my, it was my auntie's boyfriend who had the internet in his living room. The first thing I asked him to Google was Warhammer. <laughs> it wasn't even Google. <laughs> it was the first thing I asked him to look up on, on a BBS message board. I think it was Warhammer. But, of course. So my life hasn't really changed in the way I use the internet. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I just feel like that, that this, this before and after period is is something significant that this show is almost trying to get to the bottom of and i almost feel like if this was um experience.movable type <laughs> the questions i would be asking w- would be to people about the first time they saw a printed book okay and the before or after so look as a writer it's like the internet yeah, of course, the internet is vastly important, but the word processor is like maybe the the bigger threshold, right? And um, so, independently, 
I've heard from two of the, so there were basically three writers who were utterly kind of foundational for me in getting oriented to all of the stuff that I do. And it was John Berger and Alan Garner and Ivan Illich. Now, um, I've heard Alan Garner say that he can tell when he reads a book, whether it was written longhand or written into a word processor. Wow. And then I found in an interview from the late 80s with Illich, him saying the same thing that, and he also says like twice in the course of the 80s, he had the experience of showing a, um, like someone who was already middle-aged and whose professional life involved writing how to use a word processor for the first time. And he said mm -hmm. on at least two occasions, he saw them visibly pale when they saw what the delete key did. Yep. Because you can make it as if the words had never been. Mm -hmm. And I, and, and, you know, Alan's version of this is he says, the elbow is the best editor. There is something that happens in the kind of the combination of mind and body when you write longhand that tells you when to stop and when to start again. It's like waiting for, a, well, my version of it is, it's like waiting for a tug on a fishing line. And I've learned to trust this. Like I wrote a book this year where virtually every word in the book was written longhand into notebooks before I type it up. And then everything that's typed up is read aloud and changes made based on what I hear when I read it aloud. So I have to bring the book through my body, first through my arm and the pen on the paper, then through my hands, typing it into the word processor, and then through my voice, reading every word of it out loud and you know, finding the things I need to change as I hear it in order to be satisfied that I can send it to my editor. And, you know, my son is seven years old and they get iPads in school and they're not being taught to write longhand. Mm -hmm. um, and like I have fairly low expectations in a non-confrontational way of what school offers beyond childminding. So I'm like, I, he reads and writes more at home than he does at school and that's all cool. But there is, so there's a kind of naive sophistication that often comes in in the way people talk about technologies where they're like, oh, it's sort of naive and kind of superstitious to think that there's some real difference between writing longhand on paper versus writing through a keyboard. But I, I, I'm here to say that there are huge differences in these operations and that that must be like, I, I'm kind of, yeah, I don't even know how you map generationally because it's slightly different to the generational map you were doing in relation to the internet. Mm -hmm. But at least for what I do, it feels like in some ways an even bigger, less talked about threshold. So the work of body is important to the body of work in some sense. Yeah. The cursor, what software do you use to type up your, your writing? Uh, so, um, I use Scrivener when I'm in the early stages of something. Uh, I had a horrible experience where my editor read the first draft of this book and sent it back as a word doc covered in comments and said, can we work on the second draft in the comments with track changes? 
And I spent three weeks feeling like I couldn't get under the skin of the book. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I, I just went off on holiday for a couple of weeks and I came back and I said to him, look, um, is it okay if I just type every word into a new word doc? And he was like, yeah, what works for you? Uh, and then uh, like the director of the, the publishing house got slightly freaked out because she was like, but how can he find the places where you've changed things? And I'm like, um, I think you probably mean, how can you find them? <laughs> um, but I, 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 I love, I have a brilliant relationship with Chelsea Green, my publisher, so and, uh, I, I'm just laughing at all of this, but um, it's, yeah, so yeah, so, so Word is what I used in the later stages quite often, um, having taken it like once through the computer and out again and onto paper and then bringing it back in. So for you then, the cursor that's on the screen blinking, because you've mm. written the book essentially once longhand, when you're typing the words up, you're not generating the words or the meaning or the letters. They're not coming out of the cursor. You're revealing them? Um, I'm transcribing them. Is that act of transcribing the site? The, is the cursor the site of where you're moving the physical longhand copy into the virtual? I guess so. Yeah. Well, it's it's like, it's the threshold. Yeah. Isn't it? The cursor is the threshold. When you write longhand, do you feel like you're leaving part of yourself on the page? Is it a space to explore that you're? Uh, I don't like, I don't know if I have a strong sense of self, so I'll leave that bit out of it. But I feel when I'm writing longhand, like there is commitment and cost. Um, like I can't make the words disappear as if they um, had never been. I can cross them out. I can scrub them out so heavily that it's hard for anyone to find out mm -hmm. what stupid thing I said, but I can't make them not have been. And that friction um, gives a kind of weight to um, writing, which is like, part along with the kind of physiological thing of the movements of the arm and the elbow and the fingers it's part of what works for me with writing longhand i can't get lost when i'm writing longhand the way i can get lost when i'm writing on a word processor so you're not thinking on or in the page you're reporting the thoughts that are arising as you're doing the writing I I mostly make quite detailed longhand notes in an unruled notebook first uh, for a chapter or a section of a chapter and then start writing it so that I'm like not having to make all the decisions the first time I actually write it in full longhand. But when it's going well, there is a flow that can take over from the notes and take me to places I hadn't imagined. So it's a bit like giving a talk from notes rather than reading a script. So things are, are, are arising. Yeah, it's, it's an improvisational 
activity. Like writing is a form of improvisation that then hides itself behind being a committed, finished um, text. Do you think that this way of thinking is somewhat confused in the digital space? Like what is words or writing for? So for example, you use social media in a very conversational way, but then 10 years later, someone brings up a tweet as if it's been carved in stone by you. And those words have as much weight and as meaning as if you had you know, committed them to a page and stamped your name underneath it. So I think even things that you've committed to a page and stamped your name beneath are really just parts of a, a longer, slower conversation. And like all the way back to Plato, we have this kind of warning about the danger of the written word precisely because of that misunderstanding or because it can't explain itself because it is contextless. Um, like it can't make choices about who to say what to and how to explain something to this person. It just says the same thing and you ask it a question and it says exactly the same thing over again. So this is a always, it's always been there as um, the kind of the shadow side of the shine and power of written written language. And I remember when, you know, when I was in love with Twitter in the early years, I mean, like literally there was a point where if you Googled beginner's guide to Twitter, um, you, in the UK, like one of the front page results was a blog post that I'd written because an old colleague of mine from when I worked at the BBC was kind of going, what is this Twitter thing at the point where I'd already been hanging out with tech people and using it for three years. And I said, like, think of it as a giant endless pub conversation. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and I remember literally thinking about it as the closest thing to an answer to the problem of uh, the written word as described in the Phaedrus, um, because it was a written form that had that, that gave you a sort of omnipresent conversational ability to answer the question rather than just have the writing repeat the same statement over and over again, whatever question is asked of it. Um, and now, yeah, as you say, like, I, I, I find myself stumbling across my old Twitter account and going, oh God, I should probably just say, take this offline rather than leave it lying around as something that can be taken up and used against me. <laughs> yeah. What it makes me think about is writing for an audience versus writing or bearing in mind the audience of the writing that you're doing. And do you feel that it's different when you're, say, writing, when you were writing your first book versus writing in a diary or? Uh, I, I don't. I don't know. So when I when I began to fall out of love with Twitter and with kind of living my life in this super transparent way in the way that I was doing in my late 20s and early 30s on the internet mm -hmm. um what 
I, I sort of, I learned to write again by writing a newsletter because I could write something that felt like writing a letter to a friend. Yes. Without, without needing to know who the friend was exactly. And part of that for me is that the books that mattered most in my life, and I'm particularly thinking now of when I was in my mid-20s and I ditched my career at the BBC and I was trying to work out what the hell I was going to do with my life. Like the, there were books that arrived in that season of my life that felt like a letter written to me from the older, wiser friend that I badly needed. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking of Alistair Macintosh's Soil and Soul. I'm thinking of John Berger's The Shape of a Pocket. And, you know, in some cases, I later got to know the author, but that's a, that's a sort of special case because uh, most of the people who experienced those books or other books in that way never really like get never meet the person who wrote those words and I think again maybe this is like another version of tricking the written word against itself and it's it's dangerous it's a it's a kind of really double-edged line that you know I remember writing to Aidan Chambers whose books had meant a huge amount to me when I was a teenager growing up in County Durham not least because I realized that he knew and must have grown up in the same place that I was growing up in, which was a weird thing to discover in a writer. And like 10 years later, a friend of mine got to know him really well. And so I came in contact with him and I wrote to him and I said, you know, there is a kind of, there's a great asymmetry as reader writing to writer because writer can have taken you to the edge of yourself in a way that few people in the whole experience of your life have ever done without knowing that you exist. And so when you write as reader to writer, it's a bit like um, being a teenager writing a love letter to a girl who doesn't actually know that you exist. Mm -hmm. There's that quality to it. I still feel that even today, like writing to people whose books matter to me, asking them if they will, I have a look at what I've written and say something nice about it. Like it still has a quality that brings me closer to that kind of adolescent experience than almost anything else in, in middle-aged life does. So we've, we've been talking about how like words aren't just words in some sense. Do you think that the words as they get instantiated on the page have a sense of poise? Maybe is the right word. Just like the way that the way a, like a dancer will hold themselves, the poise of a dancer can be different from position to position and therefore they have a, a different way of communicating if they were written in a certain way or have a certain poise. That's nice. Yeah. I definitely, I feel like words dance. There's... There's a Maori philosopher called Karl Mika who says, oh, maybe there are two ways of using language. We can use it to word the world, which is to attempt to create a sort of descriptive layer above the world that tells us how things really are. Or we can use words to world the world, which is treating language as something that's part of and acts within the world rather than you know, standing above and describing the world. And when I came across that, even though he was describing 
this as an opposition between a kind of colonial Western modern approach to language and an indigenous approach to language. I was like, oh yeah, obviously. I, and, and I immediately saw how the writers who had mattered to me were writers who use language to world mm -hmm. the world. And that's again, Berger and Garner and so on. Um, also, I often have a sense, and this is particularly because like, to me, speaking is not secondary to writing. More of my work has been done speaking in rooms full of people or these days over Zoom than has been done committing words to the page that get into print. Mm -hmm. And and David Abram, when I crossed paths with him, sort of helped me find a certain confidence in uh, refusing the hierarchy of the written word and the book as the real substantial thing that matters. Mm -hmm. And Anthony McCann as well. I remember Anthony saying to me, you know, most of the words in human history, that most of the words that did most harm in human history were written down. Most of the most helpful words in human history were probably never written down. Um, and so as like speaking and finding a voice and learning how to speak in response to what is going on in the room rather than through a prepared script. I'm very aware that at some level, the words are like the strings and the bow on a cello. And there is a music that is coming through the words. Yes. And if I, like, again, another of Anthony's aphorisms is the more the words matter, the less the words matter. And you can say that of like human relationships. If you're at the point where you think, well, actually, I think you'll find that what I said was, then you know that this conversation, this relationship is in so much trouble that it basically doesn't matter mm -hmm. what you say next. <laughs> unless someone manages to pull the emergency cord and call the whole situation back to a place where we remember that we care about each other. Yes. Yeah. So there is a music behind the words and then, yeah, maybe the words are kind of dancing to the music. Maybe that's part of what's going on. Well, thank you for this conversation. It's been an honor. Pleasure. For those that are still with us, would you like to tell the audience where they can find you on the internet or or in person? And if you've got anything coming up that you'd like the people to know about? Yeah, so you can find me in a little town called Ustavola, which is about 30 miles north of Uppsala in Sweden. And just ask people to send you to the old shoe shop or um, doogled.nu is my home uh, online and the book is coming out in early 2023 and it's called at work in the ruins and i have a substack that is slowly stumbling into life called writing home thank you very much deagles be well you too thank you that was experience.computer with Dougald hein in the next episode I'll be speaking with animator and director Kirsten Lepore. This episode of Experience Talk Computer was created and produced by me, Jay Springett. Intro music by Paul T.Q. Freeman. Outro music by Lawrence Steele. Find more episodes of the show at experience.computer and you can find more about me and my work at my blog, thejmo.net. Thanks for listening.